We're going to be examining a book called Give the Devil His Due. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that book or heard of it, but I think it is a appropriate. I have at least two reasons why I think it's very important that we're looking at this book. I think it is, at least in our circles, the foundational teaching mechanism for the No Devil Doctrine, whether it's directly you've read the book or indirectly it's been passed on by others who have read the book. And also, I think the book has done a very good job of taking you to the end conclusion of getting this doctrine into your system. It's not something that is just naturally pops out of scripture. In fact, well, give us a chance to show you. But uh, it, it does, he, he, he is honest in the, this, the book itself is honest from the point of view that you can't just grab onto this little piece of doctrine over here and not affect the rest of the scripture. He really brings out that you've got to change a lot of things to be able to land on the idea that Satan is not a real thing. And we're going to show you that today. And I don't know if you have. Well, I guess just something that I wish people would always keep in the mind that what you just said. There, there are any idea is going to have a there's a logical chain that follows it that you, you can't change one thing in the you can't turn one dial without affecting other things over here down the line. And it's very easy, I think, sometimes for people to, oh, well, I just want to do away with this piece. Well, what is that going to affect, you know, in three or four other places? And I hope we're going to be able to show you what I'm talking about if you don't know what we're talking about. But the, it's impossible, as the book demonstrates, to give credit where credit is due. Uh, many people don't seem to want to own the logical implications of doctrines they're promoting. Mm -hmm. And he, he owns it. I mean, he, he puts the flag up the flagpole and flies it. Uh, and so I think that we, you really need to see what's the end result of this type of thinking. And hopefully we'll be able to go down the road and show you exactly what those end results are and how grievous. And I'm not even sure I have the right word to describe it, it pretty, pretty bad. But it's a lot like, and I know, you know a few, I'm, I'm not saying that no devil doctrine people are a main course in my life, but I know <laughs> enough to say that most of them will take a piece of this book and most of them will have come out of this book's teaching, mm -hmm. but they'll take a piece of it and then they'll say, well, I don't know if I, you know, agree with them on this or agree with the book on that or agree so, so forth and so on. But it's, it's, I think this particular doctrine, it's kind of like saying I have a car, but I don't believe in engines. <laughs> or I believe in engines, but you know, I don't believe in cars. You, you, it's kind of one package. You just can't get a little piece and not the other. So Seth, what do you say, what we'll do is, is because we don't want to take too much time. The book has got a lot, of, lot to say. We're not going to be able to touch it all. Some of the stuff is just really not necessary to touch it all because a, a three-year-old could tell that it's, it's just not applicable to scripture. But I think we should give an overview before we get into the four basic mm -hmm. areas that we're going to look at. And so I'll, I'll give my overview real quick. I, I found that his, uh, his need or rather his conclusions could not be achieved without one basic thing had to be established. And that is scripture is erred. 
he, he's really heavy in the saying that the translators use the wrong word for the wrong Hebrew word or the wrong Greek word. And he goes on and on how it should have been a different word. It should have been a different word. So the, I, I feel like the main foundation of this scripture and, or this doctrine for him to build was I have to first establish scripture is erred. And for me, that was enough. If you, if you, if you think that you're reading a, an error Bible, then you're opening up doors to where you can do exactly what took place in this book. Create a doctrine that does not exist scripturally, say that I'm scripturally sound on it, but really in effect, I don't really believe all of scripture. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's wrong in some places, and, and it's in a pretty arrogant position. Terribly. So I would say in a nutshell, that's, that's what I, I found to be the primary basis of this book is that it's erred, I'm right, it's wrong, except where it fits me. Mm -hmm. I saw that in the book. I also saw a, um, sometimes people have a tendency when we see a, an enemy, when we see something wrong, it may legitimately be wrong. And one of the things that was, that was mentioned that, that might have been, a, certainly was an impulse in the, the an earlier decades, and maybe an impulse now, probably should be, uh, is to, to uh, which I think this is a false idea to say that uh, we want to we take away Satan. We want to take away the idea that there's a devil because we want to encourage Christians to be opposing the uh, social perversions, the communists, all of these, uh, these other things. And it's, uh, that's simply not necessary. Uh, because it, it, you, you can believe along with the scripture that there is a Satan, that there is a devil behind all of these things, and still believe that the social perverts, the communists and so forth are, are a problem. Why are they a problem? They're, they're tools or followers of Satan. Uh, it's simply not, it's not necessary to say that. Um, and I, I think tied up in that were some false ideas uh, about the... Uh, the, the um, the phrase that has been used a lot that, oh, the, well, the devil made me do it. That's just a blank excuse. Well, well, that's really not an excuse. I don't think that the Bible indicates really the devil makes you do much of anything. He might suggest that you do something. But if you're a Christian, you can, like Christ, get thee behind me, Satan. Um, so to, to, to say that uh, it's almost a, an overemphasis on the idea that any error, mistake, or sin we commit that we just shrug and say, oh, well, that was the devil, it wasn't me. I, that, I don't think that people are really doing that. And he, that's, the, that's the key you just said right there. He emphasizes that, that when someone is a, a Satan believer, that their belief is, I don't do anything unless Satan makes me do it. And now, may, maybe some of you out there are that way, but I have never met anyone that believes in no. Satan, that, that blames Satan. We recognize that Satan may be a struggle in our lives, but we don't dismiss our own sin nature and our choice. And even the title itself, it's, the, the book is titled to be a mockery. Give the devil his due, making the claim that that's how the average Christian looks at the devil is that he's responsible. Give him his due. He's responsible for our sin nature, mm -hmm. for our, our choice for sin. Well, if you don't have any more, I think no, that really think does, that's about as good as we can get in the over, um, overview. overview. We're going to start in Genesis chapter three, because that's where this little guy shows up first. And we'll, we'll take you down the road of how he views what happened there. And we're not going to get into great detail, but just focus on 
Satan himself. And uh, so you want me to start with, do you want to start reading? You want me to, I have quotes. I don't want to make sure that I misrepresent this book. So I have some quotes here. Well, why don't I read the scripture for us? And then we'll go and um, maybe just give an overview of what it says. And awesome. then we'll Sounds proceed good. with his quotes. <clears throat> if you want to follow along in Genesis chapter 3, and I think we can probably, uh, only, well, we'll read verses 1 through 7 to get, just get us the story. We all should be very familiar with it, but it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. All right, well, that's a good place to start. Now, the average Christian, I think, because we're going to have to look at the guy that's called the serpent. The average Christian understands that the serpent, based on Revelation chapter 20, and just basic understanding of the premise of the verses mm -hmm. that we're looking at, Revelation 22, he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Yeah, even mainstream Christianity tends to grasp that point on some level. Right. So his, that the book's way of, because that can't be true, because there cannot be a literal Satan angel, a fallen angel that would speak. What do we do with this word serpent? That mm -hmm. kind of where it all boils down. So let me read a quote, his end result on what this serpent is. In all the Old Testament, um, Old Testament scripture, the word here used that is interpreted serpent is a literal snake and, or a symbol of a real snake. To teach that the serpent of Genesis 3 is anything other than a literal snake which has been given the power of speech, which has been given the power of speech, is really speculation and opinion. And then, of course, he takes us to the story that we're all familiar with, Balaam and his donkey, where the donkey refuses to go any closer to the angel with the sword. And eventually, God, and, the, and I believe the, I'm quoting this correctly, God opened his mouth. Mm -hmm. So God allowed the donkey to express himself with words. It was an act of God. He's using that as a parallel comparison, that that's what's taking place here in the Garden of Eden. So now let's just use some common sense and, and roll down this, this road that he's, he said, I'll make sure I got that right. He says that the power of speech by God, he is saying, he's claiming that the snake is given the power to speak by God. He's not claiming that God's speaking through the snake. That's really important that we understand what he's saying here. Really weak ground, but nonetheless, it's the ground he's going down. The snake 
has been given the power of speech. So like the donkey, the donkey was in a very unique environment, a situation is happening. It almost makes sense that that's what the donkey would say. Well, I've been loyal to you all this time, and here you are beating me to death, and I'm trying to protect you one more time. Well, Nathan, I think it's interesting, and those of you that have ever had animals, you know, they can't speak. Obviously, I don't, I don't think, I've, learned, I've never heard an animal speak verbally, but the donkey's speech, like you said, it's very simple. She's saying, she's just talking about the situation, and uh-huh. it's, a, it's a very, it's almost a comical thing. I, I chuckle every time I read the story. It's almost funny to me, but uh, this, this creature, I don't know if this is where you were going with this, but mm-hmm. Immediately wants to, I mean, he doesn't come up and say, like a snake might slither up and say, oh, it's warm out today. That's a pretty tree. No, he immediately wants to go into some pretty in-depth theology. The first thing he wants to discuss <laughs> is God. So the, that means we're giving at least the, 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 the snake the, the credit that he is God conscious. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that, it doesn't seem like that's a, a really logical conclusion. And not only is this snake God conscious, but he's, he's got an agenda that has nothing to do with achieving food. I don't know what snakes are prioritizing in life, but apparently he's claiming that this snake has a priority to argue with Eve about what God said. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it, that's the, the, the drive of the snake, and God just gave him this power to, to discuss. And as we go through there, we'll see this is, a, this is a very complex thing for anyone, let alone an animal. Mm-hmm. And then I, I think it also brings out the point and I've used this before, not quite to this depth, but the idea that the whole world is hanging on sin, and I am persuaded by an animal that looks like a snake. (laughs) Of all the creatures in the world that one might use to convince me to sin, I'm not sure if a snake, and I'm giving credit, maybe they weren't afraid of snakes like we are today. But if a snake curled up beside me and began to talk to me and said, well, this is what God said, I would be like, well, let's not even talk about what God said. I want to understand what's going on with you. <laughs> and that would pretty much monopolize our time together. But no, Eve just seemed to think, hmm, oh, that's just normal for a snake to be talking to me about theology and about what God said. and what." I mean, he's, you get in the picture, she's arguing, because it is, it's an argument. Well, God said this. Well, no, he didn't. He said that. Well, he didn't mean that. He meant this. Great yes. wisdom in this snake. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if we want to tie that back to the, knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we have to give credit where credit is due. He's claiming that this snake possessed something that even Adam didn't even possess. Yes. So let that and sink in. The snake possessed the knowledge of evil, where Eve and Adam only possessed the knowledge of good. And uh, one other thing, and again, the, the, I don't want to hammer on it too much. I don't, well, I don't know if you can hammer on it too much, the, the issue to, of, to, to think rationally. But if, we're, if we're dealing with a talking reptile, this is a, 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 a timber rattler's come up and is doing this, then the suggestion that he's making to her is to disobey God. Well, the disobedience of God is sin. In the earlier chapters, when God saw all of his works, that they were good. That doesn't really get us around the problem. Why would this dumb creature want to sin? Why would he suggest to her, hey, you should sin too? Uh, that, that seems to be a question that just is simply left hanging. It requires that this creature, as, as, as his claim, a snake, 
you know, in past Christians would say, well, this is, we're talking about a very um, more subtle than the, what does it say there? It, it gives them a, the serpent was more subtle than the beast of the field. Than any beast of the field, yeah. Yeah, the, I mean, it, they're labeling him as if he's, he's got some finesse mm -hmm. and uh, some, uh, some ability. Well, I just go back to picturing a snake, and I'm thinking, I don't see it. And then when we get into the consequences, mm -hmm. Okay, now the consequences are, are, in the beginning, are worded and such because we're talking about a snake. It might sound, well, that, that would be fit a snake. But again, I don't know that we see that this is a lifelong consequence. We don't really see that playing out. And of course, some might argue, well, we're afraid of snakes today. We're not afraid of snakes because God made us afraid of snakes. We're afraid of snakes today because they can slither into places that you can't see. They're dark and they hide well and they, some of them have venom and we don't want to get bit. It's, it's the same as a spider. I don't need, you know, we don't have to put a spider somewhere in the fall of, of creation in order for us to be afraid of spiders. It's because of their consequence. But let's look at this little situation here with the woman. And it says, uh, I will put, this is the consequences of the snake. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, or rather his offspring mm -hmm. and her offspring. And now we're, we're touching the very first little piece of this puzzle, and we're about to undo some of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then it says, it will bruise it, being the seed of the woman, will bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel, or rather... I believe you had it right. Yeah. Anyways, this is the, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the, the seed of the woman ultimately is Jesus Christ. And he's going to come and have victory over the snake. Right. Over this literal snake. So, and, and it's offspring. Okay, well, let's not get too complicated. So all these snakes that sometimes that I chase around with the lawnmower, <laughs> Jesus had victory over that. You see how it's already... In the very beginning, we're changing who Jesus is and what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And, and uh, you know, the old, the old Irish legend, uh, St. Patrick got the snakes out of Ireland. Uh, to, to say that, you know, that, that to place Jesus in that role, like you said, it, it really is it's almost a mockery. It is a mockery. It really is. It, it, Whether it, intentional or not, that's the effect. Now, he, he also makes a claim that we, I think I've just read that in his little quote, that it cannot be that scripture, if we're going to take scripture at its face value, that it can't be anything other than that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, the first thing that comes to mind when I think that is when Jesus sent the disciples out into the world, he said, I'm going to send you as sheep under the wolves mm -hmm. or wolves in sheep's clothing. Well... Were, were the disciples actually sent to the liberal wolves? No, the wolf represented. There was something about the wolf and its characteristics that was applied to something else. Just like we see here in Genesis chapter 3. But his logic is, is that no, I, it has to be a snake. There's no other option. And you'll find that when it comes down to people that give options, they, they, they get, well, was it this or could it have been that? And there's actually could have been a third one or a fourth one over here that you could look at that make, would make more sense. But they don't add those in here. Right. And so there are other options. And this is a literal snake. All right, well, that's, that's, is there any more we need to no, I think hammer that, on the that snake? That covers it in the, the time we have available. Okay. That, 
Well, then let's move on to Job. Point. Job is a, another battle. What we, what we did is we just picked a couple of major battlegrounds that we felt like that if you have victory here, then it, it should be settled. And uh, so the other battleground that we're going to look at here, or the next one rather, is in the book of Job. Uh, and this, this uh, issue, you, know, you, you could really get deep in this, but I, I think and I, what we're trying to do is show how just hitting some of these high spots, so to speak, if you do not believe that there is a literal being, an entity involved that, that is named Satan, the devil, uh, in one of these things, that it, it makes... It makes the Bible ridiculous. It's almost comical and it, it, it's foolish. And I think we'll really see it here, I hope, when we get into what uh, he's saying about to Job. Yeah, and more important than, I mean, foolishness and ridiculous, it makes the Bible wrong. Yes. And he's very comfortable saying, well, in this case, this is wrong. In this case, this is wrong. Let me show you what it should have said. And you say, well, where is he getting all of his information? Well, that little handy-dandy thing called a concordance. That's not scripture, my friends, and it doesn't always uh, lead you down the correct path. And, and you know, a lot of, I don't know how familiar all of you are with concordance. I spent a lot of time with it, but I promise you I do not build my theology off it. And I go out of my way to not even utilize it in teaching applications because it, is, it just can be so misleading. But a lot of times a concordance will give you a list of, of choices that that word can mean. And they always ignore the ones that don't work for them, and then they go to that one that does work for them. And the, the reason that, that you do that is because in, in these languages, much more so than our, English is a strange language, and in, in these languages, Hebrew and Greek, there's so much more that is um, picked up on the, the context of what's being discussed. Uh, you know, you, you can, well, let me try to illustrate this without wasting too much of our uh, time together. A non-native English speaker can learn the language in a school, say in another, say France or Germany or Russia, for example. And they can be, they can speak English with almost technical, perfect precision. If you brought that person and put them, say where I used to live in South Carolina, they'd be hard pressed to communicate with a lot of folks down a, down a dirt road out in the country. Because there's a lot of idioms, there's a lot of things that, that the native speakers do that the person that is real technical, they might not pick up on that. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you, using, the, using a concordance, uh, sometimes you can, you can get yourself into the same problem because if a word, if a word means a certain thing, then maybe I, that might be a technically correct definition, but you've got to look at the context of how's the word being used. Context is the key. In the specific context. You're far better off to allow the context of the... the of of what's around it. And that's what our translators did. It's not like they didn't know that Satan means adversary. They just recognized in this particular place that that's not talking about random adversaries, that this is talking about a specific adversary. Yes. And they went ahead and gave it a capital letter. That not, was not inappropriate, but that's what he would say. It was an inappropriate, it should have just been adversary. And another thing that he brings out, I don't, don't think that's gonna fit it, but when he goes after that word adversary, Satan means adversary. He allows adversaries to be a snake. So we got that one in. So animals could be an adversary. He allows adversaries to be people. Mm -hmm. And he even allows adversaries to be God. And I was telling you earlier, you know, how you get this, these choices. Well, he leaves one out. He doesn't allow 
a fallen angel to be an adversary. It can only be those. And that's where the problem is, is he's locking you into a box. I get it. Well, the root word is adversary. Okay. What adversary? Well, it can't be an angel. Why not? Because I said so. But you can go ahead and choose from man, and you can choose from God, and you can choose from a snake. But other than those, it can't be an adversary. And so I just throw that in there. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't you go ahead and start us out in Job and with the reading and, and see what we come up with. Well, I've, uh, I've, let's start in Job chapter 1, and we'll go down to verse 6. This really gets us into the meat of, of what we're talking about. Uh, verse 6 begins, Now there was a day... <clears throat> When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Uh, and interestingly enough, in my Bible, I've got a little notation beside that word Satan. And it puts over here, literally, the adversary. Hmm. Fair enough. I'm giving that. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is in increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself, put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Well, I think the, the first battleground there is sons of God. Okay. Yeah, I, unless you, is there something? No, that's a, probably a good place to start, that first little phrase. Uh, and he's probably not the only one on this that the book is that he, the, what the book represents as far as sons of God actually being descendants of Seth. Mm -hmm. I don't there I don't know if there's an extra biblical writing on that or something. I've never run into it. Well, there are extra biblical writings that describe the sons of God as a well, the Hebrew if I'm pronouncing it correct is bnei ha Elohim. And it's a, it does seem to be a technical term for angelic creations of God, supernatural creations. Uh, many of the, I mean, uh, John Calvin, for example, taught that it meant godly men. Right. Uh, so, that, I mean, there's a very long line of people that teach that. Um, in this particular case, however, I've, uh, the, the typical Protestant or even Catholic commentaries, I believe, would definitely agree that uh, this is not talking about just good men. Because the problem is, if Satan is simply an adversary, as, let's say as a bad person, and the sons of God, the good men, are presenting themselves to God, why is Satan among them? What's going on here? And again, his claim is that Satan is not is a person, yes. it's an adversary. The claim is that this is a person being the adversary. So you've got this, you've got this, uh, the, the, the setup for it is that Satan here is a bad person who comes among the sons of God who for some reason the Lord God is apparently talking verbally to, asking these questions and uh, based upon his answer he gets to uh, God wants to uh, allow him to 
do some terrible things to Job. Well, you know, you bring up a good point about the, the, that gathering there being people. And I know that's, you're not the first one to say that. But if we go to the Old Testament and, and we read what took place there in the wilderness with Israel, it, there was a lot of barriers that God had to place between him and them yes. because of the fallen nature of the world and his holiness. Well, that's all being missed in this story. Mm -hmm. It really, if we take this story at the, the, the face value that he's taking it at, is that we're literally just gods over here in a field somewhere and a bunch of men, and apparently men that don't even like God, are uh, coming together, and Job's not even part of it. He's supposed to be the righteous of all, but he doesn't even bother to attend an opportunity to go and speak to God in person. Mm -hmm. But real quick on the sons of God, the, if I understand it, Job and Genesis chapter 6 are the only two places in the Old Testament that use that term verbatim. I believe, you're, I believe that's right. So Job, I think it's kind of self-explanatory, but here in uh, Genesis chapter 6, we do have some scriptural um, cross-referencing that mm -hmm. we can use. So just to get at verse number 1 in Genesis chapter 6, and it came to pass that when the men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born unto them, this being human beings, and the sons of God, here we have that phrase now, saw that the daughters of men, which that kind of already tells you there's something different about these sons of God. There's a barrier. We're, we're talking about daughters of people or daughters of Adam and that they were fair and they looked them wives and what they've chose. So, and then we go on and we know the story that there's giants and men of renown and everything come out of that as well. Well, if we flip over here, we actually have a cross reference. We go over here to Jude chapter five, we see something about that little situation. Mm -hmm. It says the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation and reserved the everlasting chain under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah, so also like Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So we see here in Jude that these angels that left their first estate, maybe that doesn't make sense yet, they're in Genesis 6, but then they began to have, well, it says, go after strange flesh. Well, that fits Genesis chapter 6. Yep, absolutely. And then we go over to uh, one last witness here, First, uh, Second Peter chapter 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down into hell and delivered them into chains of darkness and reserved unto judgment and spared not the old world. See, now we're, we're getting right back to this time zone. Mm -hmm. It's the time of Noah. But save Noah and the eighth person and a preacher of righteousness bringing in the flood. So I think that we have some strong evidence that sons of God there are, as traditionally with thought, or angels, but now scripture is referring to angels having this major thing this looks, that matches up with Genesis chapter six. Right. And we don't see anything about sons of Seth in any of that. No, not mentioned. So building that case that, uh, that this is at least talking about angelic beings is important. Now, his, one of his, this book's defense, and I want to read this quote. It says in uh, verse, verse 3 of chapter 2, all right, it says, uh, He said to Job, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, 
although thou movest against him to destroy him without cause, who did the and now that's that was the quote of the verse, and then he asked the question, who did the, the, the destroying? God said that he did. So if we turn there and we read that, we'll see that, what is it, 2 verse 3, I'll go ahead and read that. And the Lord said unto Satan, hast thou considered the servant Job? This is after the first go around. Right. Okay, so he's, there's already been some and, and Job, bad stuff happening. And Job did not curse God. Job remained true to God. Consider my servant Job, and there be none like him, it's the same wording as before, a, peace, a, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and eschewed evil. And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Now, he's lying in this little statement because he's saying that this, this statement, that last statement, is what just took place. Well, Job didn't get destroyed. There wasn't even an attempt to destroy Job. Mm -hmm. So he's applying that statement to the wrong section of verses. Let me read to you what I believe is being spoken of. And if we go to chapter 1, uh, verse 11, it says, Put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And behold, and, and the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is thine power, and only unto himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Verse 11 is what he's talking about. This is Satan telling God, after God says that he's a righteous and wonderful man, mm -hmm. he's saying, but put forth thine hand now. Okay, so over here it says that thou movest against me, me against him. Well, it never actually took place. So to make the claim that this verse is saying that God did everything and that Satan, this, this, this adversary had no power, one is a lie because Job was not destroyed. It was actually, the rules of the game were you couldn't touch Job. But yeah, he's saying over here, God destroyed Job and it was God's doing. Well, it never even happened. So I, my personal opinion, I think he's already setting up a lie that this is all connected when what's really being said here is that God said he's still righteous, even though you asked me to destroy him and I didn't let you destroy him. Mm -hmm. But over here we see where it says that he made that request. Right. And I, I would invite you, we don't, we don't have time to go through it, but I would invite you to take, uh, take the time to read in the first chapter from uh, verse 13 to 22, which describes quickly all the things that happened. Uh, we've got, uh, in verse 15, we've got the Sabaeans, or we've got uh, a desert raiders come and they steal his cattle, and they kill all of his servants. We've got, uh, in verse 16, the fire of God has fallen from heaven. There's some type of fire from heaven that's burned up all the sheep and the servants. We've got the Chaldeans. We've got a, a different tribe of raiders that took all of his uh, camels and that killed his more servants. We've got uh, a, a great wind that destroys, blows a house down. Maybe it's a tornado that kills all of his children. And if this, if this, this adversary is a man, well, he's got some far-reaching abilities. Yeah, he even went so, so far in, in the second go-around when he got the boils 
I don't know if you remember that or not, but he claimed that, well, I could have done that. I just give him some poison or something. Mm -hmm. So that's how far he's taking that this is a literal man is he's actually, he, he can't, he didn't talk much about what you just mentioned because that would have looked that, that unexplainable. But when it comes to the boils, he's saying, well, that, that's an easy one to solve. I mean, you just give him a potion, but you can't explain away the wind. You can't right. explain away all these things that this is this is miraculous stuff this is something that is supernatural as and, we would understand absolutely it. and again just, just keep in mind that to it's not just the idea of uh, there is or isn't a devil that's that's a big thing but this goes to the heart of is the bible reliable mm -hmm. can we believe what we're reading and when you start attacking and tearing these pieces out of it you're, you you know it's it's kind of like the, the little game the children would play with the blocks. And you start pulling the blocks out, eventually you're going to pull one out, and Jenga. You pull one out, and the whole thing's going to collapse. You, you start pulling pieces of the Bible, eventually the whole thing, how, how do you believe any of it? Good point. Absolutely. Uh, it, it really becomes a um, problem of belief at that point. Well, you have any more to add on Job? I think we've touch that we probably should go to the new testament okay well in my personal opinion this is going to be eye-opening if you haven't already experienced this this writing this is where the old testament is, is a lot less said about satan directly mm -hmm. he's there though he, he, he's there there's no question about that but jesus touches base on devils demons and satan in a way that cannot be ignored and so this, the, the writing of this book hit some pretty big obstacles. Mm -hmm. And let's just take them down the road of what these obstacles were and <laughs> what his conclusion were. So let's start. I think we're there at the, uh, the temptation in the wilderness with Jesus. And I'm sure everyone's familiar with this. But we need to touch, we need to at least build a foundation and start right there. What his claim, what the book's claim is on this what took on place. This temptation. You want to go ahead and uh, yeah, get us caught up on that? We're in Matthew chapter 4. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward a hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So the basic claim on this is that Jesus is, I mean, obviously we have Satan here, mm -hmm. but it can't be an angelic Satan. It can't be 
I guess I did leave something off that list, that we ourselves can be the adversary. So it can't be the snake. Not, he's not, no snake here. No snakes. It, um, it doesn't appear to be God. It doesn't appear to be um, another man. Mm-hmm. So now the conclusion here is, is that Jesus is interacting with himself. And maybe at first glance, that may be plausible, but let's look at it a little closer. And I think sometimes it helps just to, to play this out. First off, now he, he doesn't. He's reduced Jesus to an equal of us. And that's really sad. If you're comfortable with that, I'm sorry. But Jesus is, is not, a, he's not like us. We are so treacherously fallen and disgusting, sinful beings. And to think that the, our Lord and Savior is a fallen, disgusting, sinful being is just ludicrous to start with. Well, well like with, with, with that statement, I, and I, I hope you can see that this, is, this leads to so many uh, logical problems. Because basically what he's saying here, what's being said, if, if the devil is not real, and yet here it says clearly he's to be tempted of the devil. And again, in the Greek, that word is it's, it's diabolos, or you know, we heard diablo. That's the word for devil in Spanish. Um, so Jesus is, is as specifically as led of the Spirit, that is the Spirit of God, into the wilderness for this purpose. The only argument is that it, it, it's kind of danced around, but again, think logically. Jesus, if, if there isn't an entity, a fallen angel here, then Jesus is having some kind of a psychotic break. He's so hungry and so weak from hunger and thirst and loneliness that he's, he's hearing voices or he's talking to himself. And let's, let, let's start right there. Well, one might argue, so, well, you know, you haven't eaten for a while, you're going to be hungry. First off, it's 40 days and 40 nights. I don't know how long you've gone without water, but... I don't think we can make 40 days and 40 nights. Not typically. So we have to understand this is not us in the wilderness. He, would like, he, he wants it to be us, that Jesus and I, we're, we're all bros, we're all the same thing. But it's not. This is already a supernatural event taking place right mm-hmm. here. Jesus is not us. He's he able to accomplish something, even if this physical body, that you and I could not. But you were right about him talking himself. And, and that's what it, well, let's just read right there. It says, when the tempter came, okay, so that's him. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just like, I don't know. You know, he wants to play on words. The book wants to play on words, but we, we can't touch these words. So I guess this is a mistranslation that the tempter really didn't come. It, it rose up inside. Exactly. And that would not be unrealistic for scripture to read something like that. Okay. It's, 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 it, well, saying that there's omission here. That had, had to be intentional. But instead, the tempter came to him. So this seemed like an outside source. And he said, This tempter's talking. Mm-hmm. Jesus okay? So I, I don't even think this is, was saying this is inner voice. He's hearing something audible. So uh-huh. here, this is the picture that I'm seeing. If we're going to play the game that is being presented to us, that Jesus openly starts to speak to himself. Yes. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm about as fallen as you can get. And I've, you know, had some long days. And I've never caught myself in the shop going, Nathan, I got something I have to say to you. <laughs> but that's what's being claimed that Jesus was experiencing. That, that, someone's, that something's talking to him. Okay, and and, and not, not only talking to him. That's bad enough. But 
He, if it's coming from within him, he's, he's being tempted within his own self to break the law of God. Yeah. So again, how, what does this say about the, this goes directly to the heart of the character of Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at it from a psychological perspective. To get this crazy, which is what's being represented, Jesus has lost his mind. Okay, it's temporary. It's acute. It's not anything long term. But he's lost his mind because he is so hungry that he wants to turn stones into bread. Yet, you see the battle, very short. Mm-hmm. Now, I've got some experience, 10 years working in a hospital with struggling minds. Mm-hmm. When they get that worked up, the battle is to, sh- is to shut them down. He doesn't seem like he's all that worked up. It seems like whatever the voice is, he's worked up. He's like, you, you need to get hungry. But Jesus' response, I guess what I'm trying to say is Jesus' response to this is so quick and so deliberate and it's over and done with and we moved on. That would not be true of someone who is dying of hunger and has the ability to turn stone into rock. That battle would be an all-day event. Mm-hmm. If you didn't give in to it, it would just be a non-stop struggle. I'm hungry. Food. Jesus like quotes a verse and moves on. And we on to the next thing. And also he's in the frame of mind. I can't hardly remember half a verse half the time. <laughs> but he's in the frame of mind. He's crazy. He's saying to himself, Jesus, you can turn this stone into rock. And then it's like, well, hold on, Jesus. What about these verses? It, it, acts, it doesn't make sense. It makes no sense. In one sense, he's in a really good frame of mind. And in the other sense, mm-hmm. he's lost his mind. Mm-hmm. The two don't fit up. Un- unless there is, as I think the scripture just very plainly states, there's another entity talking to him. An entity that has an agenda. There's there obviously an agenda. an agenda here. Exactly. So we move on from the rocks and we go to the other ones. And I think this is really important. And let's just go to the next one. I think it's in six here. It says, he uh-huh. said unto him, if thou be the son of God, cast out... Well, no, actually, let's move back to five. Then the devil, or this internal adversary, taketh him. All right, there we go again. We're going to have a play on words. Okay, this is not Jesus dreaming. It doesn't say that. It could have. There are so many verses in the Bible that talk about being in the spirit, or I'm not sure where I'm at, or I'm dreaming, and all of a sudden. But here we can't do that. And a very, very important aspect of, of theology. It says... That this adversary, which I guess is Jesus, so Jesus takes himself unto a holy city. So he's not really tempted. He's, he's seeking out a temptation. That makes, am, I, am I missing it? Or does that sound right? He takes himself to a place and then he sits up there and goes, boy, I, I want this to be mine. I'm going to jump down so I can prove who I am. Yeah, yeah. So he's taken somewhere. And then the next one, we move on. It says, again, this adversary, the devil, taketh him up to an exceeding high mountain. And then there he's tempted with power. Now, let me read you what, what his quotes are about this. It says, Jesus also knew that God would protect him. He could have taken physical risk, but instead he said he would not tempt God. Men often, he's trying to connect this to us, men often give in and take physical risks because they say, oh, I'm a Christian and God will protect me. Is that not the most ludicrous thing you've ever heard? Men will often take, I have never in my lifetime, and I don't know anyone, if you're one of these, and I would like to know. Gone on top of a, a, 
a building or in a tree. I mean, I've done some hunting. I've spent a lot of time at high elevations. I've, I've jumped out of airplanes. Never did I think to myself, I'm going to test God because he'll, I'm going to do something stupid because I know God's going to protect me. But that's what we reduce Jesus to. But he, he, he intentionally set himself up to do something. He had some power thing where he's, I can do whatever I want. That's what was going on. I'm going to show you who the boss is. God said he was going to protect me, so I'm going to, I'm going to prove it to myself. No one else was there to prove it to. Um, another one, another quote here. It says, Jesus knowing who he was and what he was, knew that he could obtain power. This is going to be the last temptation. Mm -hmm. Could obtain power over men with his intelligence. Well, obviously we know what this guy is, is struggling with. He sees himself as a super smart guy that's struggling with power. We recognize in other men a lust or a desire for power. I don't think I'm stretching the scripture when I say that Jesus had these feelings and knowledge of his body because Paul says in Hebrews that he will be tempted like we are. Like, I, again, I think... I've never been tempted like that. So I don't know that that's really what it is. And I don't think tempted means that he was tempted to be a murderer. He was tempted to be a, a rapist, a tempted like we are. I think it means that he's going to have the struggles and trials that we do. He felt hunger like we did. He stubbed his toe in the desert like we might. He uh, was sad when he had a loved one that passed away or was sick or was unhappy. That, that's what's being spoken of. And he's taking that verse entirely out of context. Well, uh, you know, uh, Nathan, one of the things here on this last one, that's, that, again, this, the word, if there is not another individual here in this episode with Jesus, who we call the devil and Satan, the last, this last one in particular, um, he's showing him the, the world, the power of the world. Like he's going to be, he's, he's going to give him the Roman Empire. He's going to give him all of this and he says, uh, all these things will I give thee if thou will fall down and worship me. So if, if Jesus is the only person involved in this, what is the temptation to fall down and worship himself? Mm -hmm. And who's going, if, if, who is going to give him the kingdoms if he worships himself? It, it makes no sense. Of the, the, the sentence has, loses all of its meaning. It removes all of the, um, the even the literal uh, uh, grammatical markers of the, the, this back and forth exchange. H how is Jesus going to receive all the kingdoms of the world, and from whom is He going to receive them if He worships Himself? That that that, isn't, that wouldn't even be a real temptation. Again, it makes Jesus out to be like He's having some type of an ep a mental breakdown in this mm -hmm. passage, if we go with that um, interpretation. I just don't think that it's, that, that, that can't, that's not, that's simply not what this text means. This is battleground that cannot be won by the no devil doctrine. This requires it, well, one that Bible's an error. And, mm -hmm. he, and, and, and the book brings out that the Bible is an error, so they, they can go through this and say, well, that this, this is wrong, that's wrong. But the idea that this is an internal voice that Jesus was struggling with, I think it's clear that that's not what Scripture's saying. And if we want to land on Scripture, which requires that we believe in an inerrant Word of God, if we can get that battleground one, then we can come here and say that this is not what this verse, these verses are saying. We have to imply 
a whole bunch of stuff yes. in a way that not only difficult, but really doesn't make any sense. Now, the next conclusion is, as we see in there, there's, you have more to say on? No, I think okay. that was, um, we'll Devil, is, we have devil in there and then, um, and then Satan. Of course, he's been dealing with Satan this whole time. But now he's got some new words that he has to deal with, and that's devils and demons. Or even, um, well, there was a couple here. Oh, chief devil and the prince of the devils and, and some statements like this. And so he has to get those reconciled because otherwise it leaves the door open that, okay, maybe it's not a fallen angel, but maybe it's one of these demons There's or devils other evil that would, and the truth around. be told, boy, that'd make a whole lot more sense than talking to yourself. Mm -hmm. So he's got to shut that door too. It's, it's like we said, it's just one thing after another. Once you, you mess it all up over here, then you got, and you know what? When I grew up, I was always taught that it's better to tell the truth than a lie because once you tell a lie, then you got to tell another well, lie to cover up the lie and then it keeps going and going and going. <laughs> and I really don't want to be mean or anything, but there's a lot of, a lot of what's a nice way of saying lying? False dishonesty. Dishonesty. <laughs> dishonesty by omission, perhaps. It's just Prevarication, maybe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think that's what's, what we're seeing is a snowballing. And now it's really going to get... It's going to get to where it's 100% blasphemous. So one of, one of the claims that he says is that the Pharisees are the only ones that mention devils and demons. Mm -hmm. That Jesus himself never brought the subject up. Well, that's a lie. 100% a lie. But entertaining that, let's, uh, let me do for example, let's, let's do, uh, I think it's the... Um, What's he used for an example there? Oh, the crazy guy. Let's go there. The, uh, and the, the maniac of Gadara. Yeah. Yes, the Gadarene. When you get there, I guess read that story. Let me find, well, well I said several different gospels here. Um, Should have had that bookmarked. Well, you know, let's see here. I'm, I'm, I might have. Uh, here we go. Let's read it out of Luke. Luke 11. Uh, I've got it in Luke um, chapter 8. Okay, go for it. And we need to start in verse, um, well, let's start in verse 26. <clears throat> they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. And with a loud voice, he said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For oftentimes it had caught him. And he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he broke the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And there were there a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them, and he suffered them. 
Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine, and the whole herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. And when they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and went in and told it in the city and in the country. And then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. So the book's claim is, is that this man had a mental illness and that Jesus just healed, and that word, that's the wording, healed his mental illness. And therefore, there was no demon possession as we would traditionally understand it, but that he was, was just another act of healing. Well, I've, helped, I've healed the blind, I've healed the leper, I've healed the lame, and now I'm just going to heal this guy of being crazy. Well, let me ask you a question. I know you have some experience in mental health issues. Um, it's interesting. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm in working in the field. Oh, okay. I thought you about me specifically. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you in your work Yes, in the I'm past. married, so I struggle with that a little bit. No. <laughs> uh, well, in verse 29, where it says he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he broke the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. Um, is there any condition that can give a man the kind of strength to break a metal chain or... Well, yeah, there is, that's, actually. That's, incre that's incredible to you, me. You can get to an adrenaline rush where people have done some amazing things, flip tractors over and everything else. But let me tell you a story that's going to line up to where I think you're going. In the a little almost 11 years that I worked at this, uh, um, I don't want to say it's called a mental institution, but there was some mental institution uh, issues mm -hmm. in there. One of the things I found out was, is we'd, you, sometimes it's hard to tell, but... I think that I've witnessed a lot of demonic acting out. Mm -hmm. And so I'll just list one little story real quick. So I had this, in, this young lady that was locked in a room and I, you have to stand by the door to make sure that they don't hurt themselves because they do some really bizarre things that scripture just read right there. Mm -hmm. That scripture said, uh, he, now this book doesn't say, but scripture said that was demonic. It's kind of an, it's a very stressful thing that, that I just went through. And then to sit there at that door and hear all the things that they say about you and everything else. And they're really good at making you, they find your buttons really well. So what I would do is hum hymns to myself to calm myself down. Mm -hmm. You will never see something explode more quickly than when I would start to hum or sing those hymns. They were already at 88 and they would hit 250 so trying to push that door over to get to me to shut me up mm -hmm. from singing those hymns. It was, it was, this was not a mental problem. This was a demonic issue. Right. And I've, I've witnessed it many times and I could tell you horror stories. So this, yeah, so what we're reading right there could be, I admit, could be a, a mental problem. But that's not, and this is where it's really going to hit the, the fan. That's not what it says though. Right. It doesn't say this man was sick in the mind. It could have. I don't think that it would be inappropriate to write that. It says that he has demons. And he has so many of them that they're called legions. Mm -hmm. Well, here's, let's, let's go to the, uh, the pigs first. Okay, so this, that's kind of a, to me, was a, a no-brainer. Okay, well, if it's a mental disorder, you don't have to transfer the mental disorder to the pigs. Well, he does, mm -hmm. because he's transferring something literal into another host. Here's what the book says on that. So by his act, transferring the demons and the pig, he gave them a lesson in the law, 
which they apparently ignored and did not believe. So the pig thing was only to let them know that pigs are unclean to eat. Now, if you're witnessing this, is that what you're going to get out of that? Oh, my goodness. Pigs are bad. <laughs> and now Jesus, you know, he uses parables and things like that. Sometimes it takes a little bit of thinking to get it done. But just to cast, just to, just to, didn't cast anything into him, just to turn pigs crazy like the person before, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's a, that's a real good lesson. And it doesn't indicate that in Scripture. No, not at all. So let me back up to one other. And, well, and, and think about this further. The, the, the people that lived in this region, uh, there were many Greeks in this area. Non, uh, or, you know, people that did not, they didn't really know who they were and they practiced unclean things. I, I can't imagine how they would have got, even if they were you know, Judeans that had backslid and were, oh, we're going we're to become pig farmers. They, there's just no way they would have jumped to that conclusion. No. <laughs> oh, Jesus just destroyed all of our livestock. Oh, those are unclean. We're not supposed to eat. Well, the there's very no fact that we're in an area that has pigs, obviously they had no concept of law to start with. Exactly. So that's the best way I think I'm going to teach. I mean, the greatest teacher on earth says, I'm going to teach you by literally telling you nothing. Right. But it, it goes deeper than that. So let's back up to the, the throwing out the demon part. Here's what he says on that. He says, might he have allowed them to continue in their own ignorance and superstition? Now, I'm not reading everything, so I'll, I'll paraphrase what he's getting to. Allowing them to believe that demons exist. So this whole experience, is Jesus is just going to allow them to believe that demons exist because of their superstition. It is obvious that God allows the heathen to go on worshiping false gods. And then says it again and says, God causes it in order to send them strong delusions that they may believe a lie. So here's what, here's what he's saying, if you haven't already figured it out. He's saying that Jesus didn't cast out demons, but that he made it look like he cast out demons because the people that were around him were superstitious and believed in demons, and he didn't want them to be educated in any way into something different so he lied to them not a little lie but a huge lie he says i am going to cast out demons and i'm going to put them into the pigs and i'm going to make the pigs look like they're demon possessed run them over the cliff also i don't hurt your feelings also i don't change the way you see mm -hmm. something that's the claim that's made. That, boy, I tell you what. That's not the God that I serve. Jesus is a liar. And we're about out of time, so I don't know how hard we can run this home, but I have so many verses here that I, I wrote down where Jesus tells his disciples, cast out demons. So now he's teaching a lie to his disciples. We can go to Paul, mm -hmm. and we see in Paul's writing, be wary of the devil. Flee the devil. Resist the devil. Oh, well, Paul's carrying that lie right on to it. And I have a friend, and then you can finish this out. I have a friend that, out of nowhere, gave up the New Testament. Thinks that Jesus is a liar. Thinks that Paul's a liar. I didn't see it. I don't know where it came from. And he began to use this language that I never heard before until I, started, I read this book. And all this language began to come out. Now, the writer of this book refused to give up the New Testament. Sure. But he turned the New Testament into a lie, mm -hmm. at least the people that are in it. This man, my age, 
he was smart enough to put together that the New Testament is a lie. That Jesus lied, Paul's lying about the supernatural world. That's what it was. They're lying about the supernatural world. It does not exist. And so he threw the whole New Testament out, and now we're looking at a man that I cannot defend as a Christian. That's how dangerous this, gospel, this doctrine is. We, he's changed. Am I making any sense? Jesus is a liar. That's what it teaches. And, you know, one of the, when you were just um, mentioning uh, so many of the accounts in the New Testament, there's just, there's just too many to touch on. We'd be here all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, where Jesus cast out demons, uh, did these things. If every single one of these things was a person that was simply having a mental break or some other, or a mental illness, uh, there's one, in, one incident in particular, I believe it was when Jesus came down from the mount, and the disciples were attempting to cast out a devil. They couldn't. And the, 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 it was a young child. And the child's father begged Jesus. And Jesus said, how long will I be with you? Oh, oh uh, you, know, you have such little faith. And then it says the, disi- the disciples in private later asked him, why could we not cast this one out? And he didn't tell them, well, guys, because it's not real. The child was just sick. He told them, well, this kind comes not out, but with much fasting and prayer. So not only is Jesus lying to the public, he's lying to his own disciples. Yeah. That, that, that's the implications of this type of a belief. Well, when Jesus gives an example, when the, the Pharisees called him out on healing and the power of the Holy Spirit, they said, no, you, you do this in the power of Satan, Beelzebub. Mm-hmm. What a great, opportunity, a great opportunity for Jesus to say, well, hold on, there's, there's really not any of those guys out there. But instead, he goes on to describe the kingdom of Satan and yes. how it cannot war against itself. The, the lie, Jesus just kept lying and lying and lying and lying so much that it just makes me sick to think about right. it. Right. That's, that the, that's the logical implications once you start down this road. That's where and, you're going to end up. And at the very end of the book, we have a little spot called the conclusions. And it says here that God created, and this is his, I'm not reading the whole conclusion, but one point of it. It says God created man with what we might call a defect, the natural tendency to sin called iniquity in scripture. So when we go back to Jesus in the wilderness, we're saying that he, he's, the claim is, is that he's struggling with his sin, his sin nature. Well, we all know about that. But here's the thing about sin, nature in itself. Nature is something that you are naturally drawn to. If you are naturally, if your nature is to be angry, you are going to struggle with anger your entire life. Even if you conquer it on the outside, it doesn't mean that when bad things don't happen, you get feeling angry mm-hmm. because it's our nature. He literally, and I hope in some of those quotes that he made, he literally labeled Jesus, his nature was a power man, uh, to, to seek power, mm-hmm. to test God. That's his nature? Now, the hungry one, I'll give you. I'll get hungry. But to think that, that Jesus' nature, that his entire life, that he struggled with keeping himself under control when he could become a powerful, rich ruler. Mm-hmm. I don't see that in scripture anywhere at all. And then, so to, to, to sum this whole up, here's what he's, and then, of course, we go back to on this statement here that God created us defective. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think it's the end of uh, the first chapter in Genesis, and God said it was very good. 
Well, apparently that was mistranslated too. It should have been mostly good. It was, it was okay. That'll, that'll do. <laughs> what is it they say? That, that's, that's good enough for government work. <laughs> that's not what the Bible says though, is it? So the end conclusion that I got, and there's more there. We, he, he really takes Revelation and turns it into a, a, a totally different book than I've ever oh, yeah. seen. But the end result is, is that Jesus is a liar and God's creation was intentionally defective. And I don't know if you have... Well, I just wanted to touch a verse. We mentioned it at the beginning. I think maybe we should close with it. In Revelation 20, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent. That takes us right back into Genesis. Mm -hmm. Which is the devil and Satan. So we put all these names together. And bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more to the thousand years be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So, uh, I mean, it's plain that these verses are telling us very clearly that there's, a, there's an entity, there's a being who has been busy deceiving the nations. And until he's bound up, that'll continue. And when, when he's bound up, he can deceive the nations no more. Uh, I don't know exactly how, if you don't believe that. I mean, is, is this saying in some flowery poetic language that Jesus or, or, or that this angel is binding up our natural tendency to sin? And throw, it, it doesn't, the words don't make sense. Mm -hmm. It makes the Bible not make sense. If you go down that road. And I don't know exactly. I hesitate to judge somebody's motives. I, I don't know exactly what the motive for uh, this type of belief is. Other than maybe, I, I think I touched on it at the beginning, that a person says, well, we need to be fighting our, the, the enemies that we do have, that we can touch and <coughs> feel and see. And that's true. We do need to be doing that. But to, to say that, well, the, 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 the globalists and the, the one-worlders and all, all, however you want to put it, the, the, the medical tyranny and all of these other things, we need to be opposing that. Well, who's the power behind all of that? So, yes, we need to be opposing those things, but we can only do that in, in the power of Christ because behind all of that is what the Scripture calls the prince of the power of the, of the air, who is the devil and Satan. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That should not be in scripture if this is the issue. Right. What do we wrestle against? What is our real enemy? And it does, I'm going to tell you ahead of time, it doesn't say our feelings. <laughs> it says we wrestle against principalities, against powers, and against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And it gives us a whole list of things in order to resist this Those personality things. disorder. I'm sorry. <laughs> you cannot undo the spiritual world. And of course, these verses do end up on the devil. So, not I, flesh and blood. Not, it, is, no. it is not me. It's not you. Even though you may be the tool, our battle, it's not even Joe Biden. <laughs> He's Joe Biden is, is simply a tool. So it, it doesn't undo, like you said, our responsibility for choosing the sin. But to think that 
we alone are the only thing we have to worry about in this world. Well, that's just foolish. Amen. I think that's... Well, that's all I've got, Seth. Well, actually, I've got a whole lot more. Oh, there's plenty more. We we, could go on as long as y'all wanted to listen. (laughs) Well, we want to thank you guys for your time, and we hope you got something out of this, and that's about all we have for today.